I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to the second season of Drive, delivered by DHL, where we hear the stories of fashion's most dynamic entrepreneurs in their own words. This season, we're focused on sustainable entrepreneurship. And today I sit down with Nikolai Refstrup of Ghani, which he owns with his wife, who's also the brand's creative director. Nikolai advises fashion entrepreneurs to turn their sustainability goals into something tangible and measurable so that both employees and consumers can connect with the company's ethos. I mean, you need to kind of tell positive stories and show people that you can actually make a change because like just telling people how bad things look uh, won't motivate anyone to make that change. Being a fashion company that kind of thrives off of newness and have to kind of deliver an innovative product to the market, that's probably the biggest challenge that we have. Like finding innovative, interesting, relevant fabrics that are certified or sustainable in some way or another. Like a certified garment or fabric would typically cost you 8-10% more than a conventional uh, fabric. Quite often it's down to how much money are you willing to spend. So here is my conversation with Nikolai Refstrup to learn what it really takes to build a global fashion business from scratch. Nikolai, welcome to London. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us here for another episode of Drive. I think, as you know, in this series, we look to understand the entrepreneurial journey of people who are building sustainable fashion businesses. And I'm really interested in learning the story about Ghani because it's obviously a brand that has kind of blown up into the consciousness of fashion from a very unlikely place in Copenhagen. Um, But before we get into Ghani specifically, it's really interesting for me to first understand uh, a bit about you and what it was like growing up in Denmark and how you ended up, you know, getting involved in the fashion industry in the first place. So, you know, let's start with Denmark. You know, tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up there. Denmark is in many ways, and I realize that even more as I get older, basically, it's a little bubblish in the sense that it's... um it's a little bit of a fairy tale in the sense that we've managed to kind of build a society that's uh, extremely well balanced, uh, that has a very narrow gap between rich and poor, that has like a high level of uh, kind of comfort and security. We again is reflected in a population that is fairly content. Right? Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think the last time I was in Denmark, they say it's like the happiest place. On Earth, that and and maybe Bhutan or something, but like the happiness quotient in in Denmark is really high. It is. We we consecutively we score like as the number one. I think it's a matter of like the society we built, but it's also a matter of kind of like our attitude. Don't mm-hmm. forget that. I'm sure. I mean, in that sense, we can become a little complacent sometimes. Like we aren't afraid to say that we are content. I think I spoke to my Chinese friend one day, and she was like, "That would never happen in China." So, you know, in with respect to Denmark, though, it's also known for design and it's known a lot for sustainability as well. I mean, can you talk a little bit about how these things impacted the way you saw the world growing up? I guess in, in Denmark, we've, we've, we like Denmark come with a design heritage, especially within like industrial design, product design, uh, 
we have a long-standing tradition for uh, designing and producing like high-quality furniture, but also a lot of that furniture is made available to like a broader mass. So there's been a tradition for kind of uh, making a high-end design product available to like average people. So even for me, growing up in a lower middle-class home, we'd, we'd invest in high-quality crafted furniture. And we'd be surrounded by these uh, design artifacts from, from like uh, very early on. So I guess in that sense, it's, it's always been kind of embedded in our upbringing, this appreciation for like quality design. Uh, and I think when we kind of set out to build Ghana, we, we took that with us as an inherent premise that it was not something we thought a lot about. We just knew that we wanted to kind of create uh, an alternative to what you were seeing coming out of Copenhagen at the uh, at the moment, which was either like a very androgynous uniform look or a more bohemian look. And my wife felt that there was kind of like a third way. Um, and that third way was a more colorful uh, way of expressing yourself. It was more about layering up. It was a lot about contrast. And on top of that, we added what we later kind of came to call an honest price point. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was not like it was not a strategic consideration. It was simply something we just did because it felt natural. Mm -hmm. But you don't come from a fashion background, right? So tell us a little bit about, you know, your educational background, your professional background before you and your wife started getting involved with Ghani. Yeah, so I uh, I started business economics and philosophy, and um, I did my bachelor's degree, uh, and then I continued to the IT University of Copenhagen and and finished my master's there in information technology. So I, I have a bit of a mixed background, but nothing to do with fashion. Not at all. So why why get involved in the fashion industry? How did that happen? So I spent ten years in tech, initially mm-hmm. building uh, what you'd call an incubator back then, and then after that, I set out to kind of build an early version of Siri. Basically, it was chat-based, however, um, which was probably, although we raised ten million dollars, which was a lot of money back then, it was probably three billion dollars short, <laughs> <laughs> and the infrastructure wasn't really there. Right. So after having spent Ten years in tech, I was a little disappointed with my performance. To be quite honest, so I was looking for new opportunities. And my wife has a background in fashion as a fashion buyer, uh, and she was starting to develop products with a friend that had like a gallery and a small brand on the side. And the products that she developed with him did really well. So we kind of happened to stumble into this business together at some point, and that kind of marked the beginning of Twig. Sure. There there was another sustainable brand that I came across when I started working in the fashion industry called Noir. And uh, Peter Ingerson, I think it was, who was involved with that. And I understand that you also had some kind of role there at some stage. I mean, how how did that shape your understanding of fashion coming from completely outside the industry? So Noir was a great example of someone trying to build a sustainable luxury brand, however like looking back way too early like yeah. the market wasn't ready for it the supply chain wasn't ready to supply like relevant products either but peter had like this great vision that he wanted to kind of persuade people through luxury uh, to appreciate sustainability so it it was fun times i was helping them i was supporting uh, peter in like uh, the operational side of things but also raising funds for the project but it was uh yeah, basically it was too early 
my interest in sustainability started twenty five years ago. Actually, when I was studying, I was so lucky to study three uh, P auditing, people, profit, planet, under three professors that were like super progressive. They were pioneers within this area. Uh, so I was reading a lot of books about like how we uh, already back then knew how we were depleting the world resources and and we were basically beyond the limits to growth. Uh, and combining that with me studying uh, game theory, uh, prisoner's dilemma in particular, which is uh, a mathematical way of describing how uh, humans tend to uh, behave opportunistically in a way that provides like a worse outcome for all of us in the end. <laughs> I know it's a little daunting, but that kind of shaped my view of the how I saw human behavior. And combining that with the literature I read on uh, how uh, things from like a resource point of view was looking pretty uh, daunting as well, I kind of had the epiphany that we were we were headed for 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 bad times. Mm. So that was kind of the beginning of my perspective on sustainability. And actually, for many years, until two, three years ago, I had a habit of shooting out doomsday emails to my friends, luckily mostly just my friends, until at some point I realized that it it wouldn't bring anything good with it. I mean, you need to kind of tell positive stories and show people that you can actually make a change because uh, like, just telling people how bad things look uh, won't motivate anyone to make that change. Mm. And that's where Ghani comes in, right? So your wife has collaborated with this friend of hers on this these products and they're doing well. You know, at some point you decided to get more involved Talk to me a little bit about what that journey was like and, you know, how you injected or kind of integrated this kind of sustainable thinking into the business from the very beginning. Because I think so many businesses now, they are trying to retrofit a sustainable approach to fashion, uh, kind of ex post. But, you know, you and your wife were in the very fortunate position of thinking about this from the very beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Yeah, so... First of all, I I mean, fashion is inherently bad. We all know that by now. It's like we five off of newness. It's about consumption. Um, so I, we and we have to kind of be honest about that and, 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 and be aware uh, that, that, that that's a fact, basically. Um, however, having said that, when we set out, I must admit that I w- wasn't totally aware of how uh, bad the fashion industry would be compared to other industries. That's a fact that only kind of dawned upon us uh, lately, I'd say maybe five years ago. So in the beginning, our sustainability effort was very much about um CSR, as you called it back then, it was more about kind of uh, behaving responsibly, like taking care of your suppliers, making sure you had a code of conduct in place. We hired our first CSR manager in 2013, which was, I mean, given the size of the company, that, that was kind of extraordinary. And I think looking back, I think it's not that we we did anything outrageous, but we we had one thing that I think a lot of brands still today lack, and that's a willingness to spend money on this in this area. Because that's, uh, I mean, a lot of brands sometimes, and I, I'm definitely not trying to call out anyone for greenwashing or anything like that, but a lot of brands tend to maybe launch like an organic T-shirt in collaboration with an NGO or maybe a collection made of dead stock and then forget about the things that has an actual impact on uh climate change or CO2 or water consumption or whatever their priorities are. Uh, 
And that's quite often because you forget that you need to spend money on the topic. Like a certified garment or fabric would typically cost you 8-10% more than a conventionally uh, fabric. So it's, it's, it's quite often it's down to how much money are you willing to spend. Yeah, I can, I can see that. So when you think about that and you think about the positioning of your brand, you said that you, know, you were thinking about positioning Ghani with an honest price. So how do you manage the tension between an honest price while also having to spend more on materials or fibers or processes that are more expensive? That's a very good question, actually. And one we've often talked about, like deciding to spend more money on a certified fabric, that's a business decision. Anyone can do it if you're willing to sacrifice bottom line. However, over time, we've managed to be very profitable. I think we were close to doing uh, almost 28% EBITDA margin, which is fairly good. Uh, it's excellent. Yeah, until we partnered with El Caraton, then we kind of dropped uh, slightly. We'll get <laughs> to that bit in a second. Very expensive friends. <laughs> However, I think what I realized actually as part of the process with El Caraton was that uh, we've managed to uh, run a company in a very, very lean way. So uh, I learned that I actually took a lot of principles with me that I had like uh, learned about while uh, running a fashion business or a tech business, actually. So, for instance, we'd have like a very flat hierarchy, a lot of trust in individuals. Uh, so we'd never look to people's background necessarily. If you found talent, you'd bring that person on board, which is something you do in tech quite often because especially like programmers, architects, stuff like that, they're very, that's a scarcity. Uh so we'd bring talent on board whenever we saw them. If they were good, we'd give them lots of responsibility. It would be a very consensus-driven organization with a kind of made-the-best-argument-win attitude. So you'd have a very, very lean organization with a very high output. So I guess what I'm saying is that we, uh, we could probably allow ourselves to allocate resources towards sustainability because we were, we were already a fairly profitable business. So th- that that helps. And I actually, I was speaking at a conference a couple of years ago and I had kind of figured that we were spending roughly 0.8% of total sales on like sustainability related uh, activities. And and my question to the audience was, is, is that good or bad? Like, or, I mean, do I need to spend more? Does anyone know how much do we need to spend? Because I think we kind of need to be a lot more quantitative about our approach to sustainability in order to make it more transparent and in order to drive the change that we all need so badly. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I observe about companies that think about themselves as being sustainable businesses um, is that everyone's definition is different. But, you know, Ghani is a very unique example of a business that seems to have integrated sustainability into so many different elements of the business. You know, if you know when you're describing your business to other people, you know, do you lead with the sustainability messaging? And if so, you know, what is it that you, you know, what are the words that you use to describe the business you've built? Why is it a sustainable business? How do you describe the sustainable thinking to other people? Well, actually. At least until recently, we never talked about sustainability for for two reasons. It's still a sensitive topic. I didn't want to be called out for greenwashing because I still realized that like doing fashion is not sustainable. 
Um, secondly, also because in many ways I want to be a fashion brand more than a sustainable brand. There's still kind of uh, like the, the perception of a sustainably driven brand is often that it's kind of very kind of simplistic clothing. Uh, and 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 I want to prove. I'm hoping to prove that you can actually build a fashion brand that's that's sustainable. But I I want it to be kind of secondary. Uh, that's not the storytelling we want out there. But the reason why we started talking about the topic is actually because we saw a lot of brands picking up on the topic, and we didn't want to be left behind when it came to kind of the storytelling part of it, which is also super important. So at Ghana, we, we, we tend to think about sustainability projects in two ways. Either they have profound impact on uh, the business, but typically those kind of activities are relatively boring, mundane stuff like implementing the HIC index or converting to bioplastics or stuff like that, designing for circularity. But we also have a lot of projects that we are totally aware has literally no impact on global climate change but they increase awareness and they're fun topics to talk about. And that kind of makes the sustainability or migrates the sustainability agenda from being something that you do within the sourcing department to something that we all care about. So it becomes like a mindset or a culture amongst our t- uh, team rather than just something that I dictate or the sustainability uh, team will police. So that could be, for instance, when we grow mushrooms in our canteen on the coffee grounds from our espresso machine. Um, that would be a good example of that. Uh, I mean, it's not going to have any impact, but it looks pretty and everybody talks about it. Mm. I'm interested in the profound impact first and going a little bit deeper there because, you know, for people who are listening to our conversation and who want to integrate sustainability into their businesses, what are the things that you found through your experience in building Ghani that have the biggest impact? Where should people, if they, if someone, if an entrepreneur out there listening wants to, you know, start, where can they start to have that impact? So most importantly, you need to pick your priorities because this topic is so complex and so abstract. It's very, very difficult figuring out actually what you want to do about it. I, 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 I tend to actually compare it to a wall, basically. If this was a wall, the enemy would not be at the gates, but actually have broken through the gates, and we'd all be scrambling for weapons, whatever we could find, like a fork, a chainsaw, whatever. And you wouldn't discuss whether or not you were doing the right thing. You'd appreciate that everybody were trying to defend themselves. But because the topic is so abstract and so complex, people are having trouble figuring out what to do. So my biggest recommendation is start with your priorities and we pick three uh, SDGs or uh, sustainable development goals uh, of which uh, climate change is the biggest priority. So so since 2016, uh, our carbon footprint has been like a top, top, top priority for us. And what we started to do, and that's my kind of second piece of advice, turn it into something tangible, measurable, something that people can relate to. So we started out mapping our carbon footprint and started to compensate that uh, and I know like you could blame us for kind of paying indulgence by like carbon compensating uh, however I still think it's a great thing to do for two reasons a it has actual consequences out there there's a there's a carbon reduction taking place out there somewhere 
and uh, and 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 secondly, it's kind of a way of imposing a, like a monetary tax on your behavior. So it's not that it's insane amounts of money, but it's I think we spent probably sixty thousand pounds. I have to be careful with the pounds exchange rate because it changes every day. These Especially days. in the <laughs> middle of Brexit, but yeah. <laughs> but we probably spent sixty thousand pounds last year compensating our carbon footprint. So it's real money, and it's money that kind of helps me take decisions. I'll give you another example. So we're not big on leather goods, but probably 6% of total sales with us is made up of leather goods. However, roughly 40% of our carbon footprint is derived from those 6%. So, but like typically you'd still want to have leather product, pro, uh, products in your collection. Uh, and we are on the fence about vegan leather because there's also like, that can also be challenging. Uh, so, like knowing that I spent sixty thousand pounds last year, and I'll be spending probably closer to a hundred thousand pounds this year, kind of helps me drive that decision forward to eliminate or convert to uh, an alternative fabric. So again, it's kind of about making things very, very tangible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was your first sustainable development goal, was which was around climate change. What were the other two priorities? So gender equality. It's an obvious one, obviously, uh, because we are a company of maybe 160, 65 people, and I think we are 10 guys, basically. So, And I got two daughters. Like, I'm, I'm a big supporter of the whole gender equality agenda. Um, we've always been that, actually. But that's an obvious one. And then secondly, it's about designing for responsible consumptions. Uh, that's the SDG, uh, and that's about kind of designing for circularity, uh, which is ob- also an obvious one. I mean, people tend to forget that a fashion product is actually a very, very complex product. Like it, 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 it's a mix of a lot of different fabrics and materials, which makes it very, very hard to recycle or upcycle even better. Um, and that's why you can kind of mitigate the consequences of your production quite early on in the design process if you manage to to design for circularity. This podcast is delivered by DHL. As the logistics partner of many of fashion's most prestigious businesses, from billion-dollar brands to emerging designers and innovative SMEs, DHL is stitched into the fabric of the $2.4 trillion industry. Present in more than 220 countries and territories, DHL provides tailored and comprehensive go-green logistics and business solutions that enable fashion businesses to grow sustainably as they expand domestically and into new international markets. For more information about DHL and how it can help your business increase transparency around your environmental impact, minimize logistics-related emissions, and offset what cannot be avoided, visit logistics.dhl. I noticed as I was doing my research today that there's a lot in your business about materials. You know, biodegradable rainwear, recycled polyester, responsible wool and down, uh, and of course the original fabric, um, which you know started Ghani, which is cashmere. Mm. You know, to the extent that you can. What, how much of the circularity issue starts with the materials you use? So in our case, as 
our carbon footprint is like the top priority. It's uh, it's a big thing for us because eighty six percent that changes from season to season, but around eighty eighty five percent, sometimes more uh, percent of our carbon footprint is derived from the actual product, and. 60-65% of uh, that is uh, the actual uh, uh, fabric. So uh, that's obviously uh, a big priority for us. And having said that, at the same time, being a fashion company that kind of thrives off of newness and have to kind of deliver an innovative product to the market, that's probably the biggest challenge that we have. Like finding innovative, interesting, relevant fabrics that are certified or sustainable in some way or another. So that that's kind of like a, a core challenge that we're we're faced with. Is that changing? I mean, back in the days when you worked with Peter Ingerson at Noir, um, it must have been re- almost impossible to find sustainable materials to work with. P- Peter would try to grow his own cotton out of Uganda. So that's how I remember. That's how complex things were back yeah. then. Yeah. Today is it getting better though? It's getting a lot better. It's driven by like technology innovation. There's a lot of like uh, money flowing in that direction. We're seeing a lot of interesting uh, materials popping up, but also kind of recycling processes. So uh, there's definitely big change uh, coming our way, and and it seems like it all happened within the past couple of years. So. Yeah, that's awesome. It, it really helps us in kind of continuing to, to, to deliver a fashion product that's, that's sustainable or certified in some way or another. So those three sustainable development goals or focus for you um, help you to create the profound impact. But I'm really interested also to, to learn more about the other side of things, which you said is about building awareness. Like, why is that so important for you? If it's not having, if it's not moving the needle on the kind of goals that you've set as a business, why is the other bit important? Growing mushrooms um, out of coffee grinds or, or, or any other example? Because it kind of creates a sense of purpose on like a meta level. Like it's, it's, it's good to be part of a thriving fashion business. Uh, it's, it's good to appreciate going, uh, doing great quality design and seeing happy customers. But... Uh, I mean, our, our our kind of employee or the team members uh, at Ghani, they 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 really appreciate this meta level of of purpose or sense of purpose that we can kind of bring to them through activities like that. And then also because it's like, uh, how, what can I compare it to? So you know how um, like tech or e-commerce, for instance, used to be something that would sit with the marketing department. They would own your website. Then it kind of migrated towards you building your own e-commerce department when management started to see how this became an important topic that was profitable. And then it kind of became an even bigger topic and now sits maybe with the CTO or, or a CIO if you're a big company. Uh, and the latest development is trying to get it to kind of be, now that all companies are digitized and we talk about like datafying everything you want it to kind of permeate every organization or every team you have every department and it's pretty much the same thing we're trying to achieve with uh, with our sustainability effort you know it used to sit with sourcing and it used to be about corporate social responsibility then it became more kind of a, a task for a sustainability team but really what we want is it to be kind of at the forefront of people thinking, it, it has to be like the first thing that pops up no matter what we do. If we buy a desk for the office, if we uh, buy food for the canteen, or if you uh, design a product. Uh, and that's a very interesting kind of trying to change people's habits and their attitude and 
is a big topic for us. So, for instance, we we try to reverse processes sometimes. So, instead of having like this field in our ERP system where we create a product from a system point of view, where you have where you write, so this product is sustainable because it's got certified or whatever. We kind of try to reverse that, and then we force people creating those product descriptions in the system to explain why it's not sustainable. So it becomes kind of, instead of being like a reactive product where you're kind of lucky to be able to report back to your team friends that this is sustainable, you have to kind of explain why it's not sustainable. And we try to bring that kind of concept with us in everything we do. So when you open a store in London, if it's not entirely sustainable, which it's by far not, I mean, uh, you have to explain to me why it's not. Like, why is the displays not uh, sustainable or certified in some way or recyclable? Why is the flooring not? Like, it's kind of trying to change people's habits and through that also changing their kind of approach to the topic on a, on a kind of overall scale. So how do you take that thinking that you've turned upon its head back to the customer in terms of the way you manage the expectations of the customer? Because, of course, one of the risks of starting to communicate about sustainability, not only can you be perceived as greenwashing, um, there's, you know, customers that are looking for this. They're, they're more and more demanding these days in terms of what they really consider to be a genuinely sustainable product. They, I mean, and I hope I'm, I do not sound too cynical, but I'm, I mean, most of the reports I read on uh, contemporary consumer these days is that like more than 70% of them prefer a product to be sustainable. They love it to be part of the storytelling around it. However, sometimes I see numbers down to as low as 7% of them being willing to pay a premium for a product that's sustainable. Um, so in many ways, I still think uh, that, that this whole sustainability thing is, in the eyes of the consumer, more a storytelling thing. It's a brand initiative more than anything else. Uh, whereas, like, making sure that it has actual impact is more moral obligation you have as a brand. Like I've always viewed it as a moral obligation for now. And then I guess an insurance policy that will allow you to do business five years from now, because I'm sure that people's the end consumers perception will accelerate in the coming five years. It's, I think like you need to be sustainable five years from now in order to be able to conduct your Business. Yeah, and at the very least, if they're not willing to pay more for a sustainable product, uh, it might be a consideration for them in a in a purchasing choice, amongst other things like design and quality and and whatnot. That that influences the decision they make between two products that they're considering. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's obviously a differentiator. However, I think still. We also need kind of the entire vocabulary around sustainability to evolve and become more sophisticated. And you as a media also play a very important role in that because sustainability is such a broad topic now. I'm sure three years from now, we probably won't be using it because it's been slightly diluted. Mm -hmm. We need a more kind of, yeah, more sophisticated way to approach the topic also so that we can kind of criticize products or brands that are not necessarily entirely sustainable, however, are trying to do better than not doing anything at all without kind of calling them out for greenwashing. It has to be less binary. Because mm. if we get to that point, educating through the media, educating the end consumer, I think we would have a kind of a more nuanced picture of, um, of uh, how you can be sustainable. I really like the language 
that they used actually at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit the last time I was there a few years ago. They were talking about responsible business. And for me, that that takes into account things like the environment and, you know, ecological issues and climate issues. But it also takes into account the people and the way they're treated throughout the supply chain. And so, you know, running a responsible business seems to be a more, you know, a broader term that hasn't been so diluted. I completely agree. I mean, we have a project going on actually now where we're trying to adopt the language that The Guardian put forward at some point as a kind of a suggestion to their readers, I guess. We adopt that into how we talk about sustainability. So we're going to replace the word sustainability with responsible, as you put it, but also talk about climate emergency. Instead yes, of as climate. opposed to climate change, climate exactly. emergency. Yeah. So, you know, this is a, a podcast series about building a business. And, you know, it's kind of incredible how you've had these sustainable values integrated into the business from the very beginning. But what I find absolutely astounding is how quickly you've managed to grow the business while putting constraints on it, whether it be the kind of extra money you're investing or the extra effort that you have to put into finding the right materials, which kind of constrains what you can do with the product. How have you managed to scale the business so quickly while having these constraints in place? Because you know, even growing and building a regular fashion business without any constraints is very challenging. Yet you and your wife have managed to do this in a way that, you know, that's very impressive. Well, thank you for that. I, I'll first, first of all, let me just stress again that, that I don't think we are sustainable by any means. Like we've got a long way to right, go. Right, so of course. Just, uh, but uh, I don't know. I think, uh, I think actually... Like being based in Copenhagen has been both good and bad. Like so, obviously Copenhagen has received a lot of attention over the years, uh, and it's about the food scene, it's about movies, it's about product design and craftsmanship. But it's also, especially these days, about kind of having built a balanced society that people are very interested in, especially nowadays where like the whole world seems to be in turmoil. So. Obviously, we got a lot of that going on for us, and we were part of that moving, having been going on with this for the past 10 years. Uh, however, it's also kind of a limitation because it's a relatively small, it's a very small home market. So quite early on, you have to start exporting, and that adds a lot of complexity to your business, whereas being a UK-based brand or a Paris-based brand or even better, a US-based brand, you can kind of grow your business to 100 million euro before you even start to think about exporting. And again, like for Denmark standards, we've been doing well. We're, we're an 80 million euro brand this year we're still growing at 30 40 percent so we're doing fine but again from an international perspective i guess you've heard of lots of brands that have grown even more even faster so i think in many ways i feel it's been fairly organic and balanced what we've been doing i i mean i'm not lying when i say that we could have grown the brand much faster if we wanted to but we've had like we've been going through these exercises a couple of times where we've been dropping kind of more than 10 percent of total sales in kind of uh, filtering out wholesale accounts that we didn't feel were right for the for the brand any longer, and like some of them were very very big accounts for us. So, and that's probably been the biggest challenge we've been faced with. That's kind of balancing the brand journey with like your growth ambitions. Um, but I felt like the growth part has been kind of coming by itself, just by staying true to your instincts developing an interesting and relevant product and then just it's all about the daily grind in many ways one 
specific question I had was the role of retail. I mean, for a relatively small business, you have quite a few stores and building, operating, managing stores can be very expensive. The capital investment required um, is, is high. Mm-hmm. You know, how have you managed the strategy around you know, investing in retail and getting you know, the right return off of that investment? Again, I think, I mean, first of all, talking about retail, we've always had this idea that we wanted to be channel agnostic. So I guess, again, coming from a tech perspective, I mean, I was, uh, I, 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 surprisingly enough, I didn't have any desire to be direct to consumer only. Cause, uh, but I'd rather think about the product in terms of data and then be channel agnostic. So don't get me wrong, but I don't care how I meet my customer. It can be through a wholesale account. It can be through own retail. It can be uh, uh, through online sales. Uh, as long as I kind of get to know how my product performs uh, and if my customer likes it. So we've been very data-driven from the very beginning. We've been channel agnostic, but we've also appreciated very much what you can kind of offer the end consumer through a retail store. So omnichannel, channel agnostic from the very beginning. And then uh, because we had this idea that we wanted to position the brand through a side street to high street perspective, uh, we, given our price point, we didn't dare to position ourselves on a high street because that would kind of dilute the brand value. So we always opted for these side street to high street locations, which meant that it was a lot cheaper for us to kind of get in on the lease uh, rent levels were manageable, et cetera, et cetera. And kind of if you can come about a retail space on fair terms, then retail is a very profitable business. So I guess in that sense, we were never kind of squeezed by our own uh, growth ambitions through retail, really. Mm. So recently you've taken on this uh, investment from Al Catterton, and I, I'm I'm curious about the decision to bring on an investor when clearly you're running quite a profitable business. You said 28% EBITDA, which is very nice. You know, why Why did you need to take on investment? And, you know, why did you choose Al Catterton as a partner? So, again, coming from a tech perspective, it's very, very common to bring on board investors in the tech industry. Like, you have, like, a, a high degree of appreciation of the value that different partners can bring to your business case at various stages. So in tech, you'd celebrate bringing on board an investor, uh, whereas in fashion, you're kind of like you go silently about it because, yeah, that, that that's one of the big differences between tech and fashion. Like I, I realized that quite early on because nobody would talk about investors, but literally everyone had one. Uh, but I've always known that we needed investors at some point, especially being based in Copenhagen and given the fact that I'm not an industry veteran. I mean, it's not like I've built distribution in China. So it was never something that I didn't want to do. And when we felt that we were at a point where we needed help in kind of growing the business internationally, uh, we kind of embarked on a closed process. So we approached uh, seven or eight different funds, asked them if they were interested. And then we picked El Caraton because of the accumulated knowledge within kind of their wider context, their affiliation with LVMH. And it just made total sense for us. I remember meeting the lead partner for the very first time. He'd never seen me before. And he came charging at me at the reception at the corporate finance advice. And, and he kind of laid bare our entire business. He kind of guessed all our KPIs. 
just by having visited two stores and I was like I think we found our guy there. So that was that was super impressive. Right. What what's the end game there? Does that mean, you know, one day you'll sell the business? Yeah, I mean, you have to of course. I mean, they have to sell their part at least. Uh I mean, my wife and I are not done with this business at all, especially I cannot drag my wife home from work. So we're 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 in it for a while for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously you need to sell a second time. Mm. So looking back now, Nikolai, as you think through the journey that you've been on, you know, what was the most challenging moment for you? I think the biggest challenge for a company based in Copenhagen is kind of growing the business, obviously. But it also kind of keeps you on your toes because you need to be very, very like focused on like growing the business abroad from a very early stage, mm-hmm. uh, which like forces you to be very agile. But that's probably been one of the biggest challenges we've been faced with. And then obviously because this is probably the biggest challenge because we had this idea from the very beginning that I wanted to create an international brand. My wife wanted to kind of show the world that there was a third side to Copenhagen or Scandinavian fashion. But because we wanted this international brand, we kept insisting on working with multi-label stores that carried mostly luxury products. And we didn't know better, to be quite honest. We just had what we felt was an honest price point product. And then we knew the kind of uh, retailers that we wanted to work with. And for, for sometimes for years, they'd, they'd turn us down. And we just insist on coming back again and again and again. And kind of... Why did they turn you down? Because of the price point, basically. Too low. Too low. That's like, they would literally tell us that. Your price point is too low. We love the brand. We love the storytelling. We love the product. But your price point is too low. And which I totally understand from a business point of view also. They, they, they were at risk of kind of cannibalizing their business. But then the whole mix and math thing kind of caught up with us and them. And it, it became obvious that we would be a nice addition to the luxury brands that they'd carry. Hmm. But that in the beginning, that was that was a tough struggle. Is there a big mistake that you made along the way that you know you think now? Wow, that was a yeah. I think I think in the beginning, especially, we tried to kind of strategize too much. We we thought we could kind of come up with this light bulb idea that would change everything and it would lead the way for us. But when we kind of accepted that we had like we had a vision, mission, like a, a, a couple of guiding principles. We knew where we wanted to take with the brand and we could kind of t- break that down into tangible things like the stores we wanted to work with, the brands we wanted to sit next to, how fast or how slow we wanted to grow, et cetera, et cetera. So we had a fairly simple mission. We could break it down into something tangible and then just kind of instead of trying to think you could strategize your way out of it, kind of based on those principles, trust in your instinct and then just grind through it, grind through it. It's all about execution, isn't it? It's 80%, 90% execution. That's why we call this series drive because so much of what it takes to be successful is just that drive, that inner – you call it grind. Yeah. Um, but really grinding through like the difficult moments, the challenges, the uncertainty. It's that entrepreneurial journey that we're really focusing on. Yeah, and you think you're never going to get through it sometimes and then suddenly you are just two weeks down the road and you got through it. I yeah. Mean, yeah, I can relate to that. One last question for you. So for someone listening out there in Copenhagen or in Lagos or in Sydney, 
you know, what what is your advice for someone who wants to build a business like this, a responsible business? Like, where where should someone start their journey? Depends on your stage in life. I mean, I I really appreciate seasoned entrepreneurs. I think. I see a lot of people that start out too early. I think you can gain so much from working with a bigger company uh, before you venture out doing your own thing. I think I read somewhere also that seasoned uh, entrepreneurs, like people that are older, when they start their own business, are more successful. Uh, so <laughs> it's a little boring, I guess, but that would probably be my first piece of advice. Rather than start your own fashion business right out of uh, university, maybe spend three, four, five years in an international fashion house and learn the daily grind. Um, and then secondly, I think it's so much easier being sustainable if you bake it into your DNA from the very beginning. It doesn't have to be part of your brand story or your your, your storytelling. But if you bake it into kind of who you are, it's so much easier because it just becomes what you do. So it's second nature. It's second nature, totally. Mm. Nicole, I thank you very much for sharing your story. Thank it's you so much. It's been really for amazing me. to see Ghani kind of emerge from this small little scene in Copenhagen to become really one of the defining brands here in Europe. And it's, uh, it's always inspiring to hear the stories of people who are doing it responsibly. So congratulations. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you for listening to Drive, delivered by DHL, where we hear stories of sustainable entrepreneurship. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, biannual special print editions, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education.